This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. It's a game day edition of the Equalizer podcast as the NWSL Challenge Cup is now underway. I'm Dan Lawletta along with John Halloran. And let's just give you a quick overview of how we hope to work this as we go through the NWSL Challenge Cup. The plan right now, we're going to have podcasts coming at you the day after each match day throughout the NWSL Challenge Cup. We will do two segments, one on the first game, one on the second game. For the most part, we're going to be recording segment one before game two. So right now, we're going to be talking Thorne's courage. That doesn't necessarily mean – it means that you know the result as you listen of the second game, but as of right now, we don't. After the break, we'll come back. We'll have that second result for you. But, John, before we get to the game itself, even by women's soccer standards, this week was bonkers because we had our <laughs> – yeah. Out of the tournament with COVID positives, and then maybe all those positives were not really positives, but they maybe or maybe not tried to get back in the tournament. Finally, Allie Krieger got ahead of the story and said she was one of the positives, but that she then did test negative, so she didn't know what was going on. And then the Women's World Cup went to Australia and New Zealand. You know, I don't want to belabor the Orlando point, but it's I feel really bad for everybody involved because as Krieger said in her Instagram post, people traveled halfway around the world to play this tournament for the month and now they got nothing. Yeah, and I felt bad too because I saw a tweet from their their goalkeeper coach talking about all the hours that had gone into prepping for the season. I mean, if you look at the way that this preseason got dragged out, these players have been in a perpetual preseason for four months. And when you look at just how much joy there was today in this first game um i think that's got to be especially hard for those orlando players who are sitting at home watching this and whether that is and again we kind of still don't know because of the you know of the way things have gone whether this was a uh testing issue or whether this was because of a couple of players breaking protocol um those players now have to miss out on this experience and that's just brutal yeah, it really is. And, you know, if players did break protocol, that's obviously problematic. I don't want to start calling people out by name. I think if you're listening to this, you're most likely have figured it out. Uh, but I don't think this is the place to call players out by name because partially we don't know and partially, you know, we don't know for sure what went on. And, you know, everybody makes their own decisions in this time. But, it, you know, if you think about it, you can you're really making decisions that could impact the fate of an entire league because if, you know, you lose a second team, then you have to think maybe the whole tournament is in trouble. And, you know, maybe this isn't a league that can stand on, on that kind of ground. And, you know, they're out, so they let leaves eight and they redid the schedule a little bit. 
And I don't know. I, you know, it was weird to have one team not make it out of the knockout round, but now it feels like some of those Olympic sports where they have pool play, but everybody goes to the, to the yeah. medal round anyway. So it's a, you know, even watching the game, it was a little unusual because, you know, it really doesn't matter. You could literally get outscored 20 to nothing in four <laughs> games and win the right. trophy. Well, I guess it'll affect seeding, right? So at least right. there'll be there'll be some effect. But you're right, and I also think that considering the oddity that this year and this season has provided, it is, I'm sure, nice for these teams to be able to get three matches in virtually consequence free before they have to go into a knockout round. So it at least gives the coaches some freedom to look at different uh, ways that they might want to line their team up, different combinations of players, and uh, really just kind of lets them experiment through these first couple of games without really having to worry about what the score sheet says at the end. And it's almost like an informal preseason that only really right. leads up to who you're going to play, not if you're going to play in the knockout rounds. All right, real quick, Australia and New Zealand win the World Cup bid, which got down to just that bid, and Colombia, uh, Japan had dropped out, Brazil dropped out. Uh, look, I, you know, it's easy to say, well, they had the best bid. I don't know anything about the bids. I don't read stuff. I don't know if you dive into the actual bids, but it seems like a part of the world that is popular, but really hard to get to. So, yeah, uh, you know, I don't know. You know, the games are going to be at weird hours. Uh, we don't know the dates on the calendar yet. Um, but, you know, I mean, you know, it's a place that has not had a World Cup. So, you know, let's have at it. It's a long way, long way to Australia, though. Yeah, there's certainly some challenges, I think, for the fans in the U.S. having to you know, watch these games at weird hours. And then if you travel, not only is it, you know, take 24 hours to get there, but it can be quite expensive, especially when you consider that you're probably going to have to be flying in between each city because not only are you in uh, two different countries, but you're also, you know, as I understand it in Australia, basically have to fly uh, to reasonably get from one of these cities to the other. So I think that presents a number of challenges. I will tell you that I'm happy for Australia, I think that, you know, of the different nations around the world that we've seen growth in in women's soccer, that they've been one of the leaders over the past 10 years or so. We've really seen the growth of the W League. We've seen their national team push into the, you know, into or very, very near the top tier. And so I think uh, the work of a lot of people and some of whom that we know pretty well has really um, come to bear. And uh, like I said, I'm just happy that, that they were able to get this. Will John Halloran be making an appearance? We're going to find out <laughs> you know, whether it's, yeah, whether, whether the, the dates work and, and uh, how the money situation works out. Like I said, that's, uh, that's quite a bit of flights. So. You know, when I went to Canada, I remember thinking, well, this is probably the big one for me. I'm not going to France. Yeah. And then when France got closer, I was like, well, I have to go to France. So now I'm like, you know what? Australia is probably a little bit too far, too much. I've already got people over there. You know, soccer people over there, you know, goading me. Oh, it's not that far. It's not that hard to get there. And like, yeah, it's, it's far. <laughs> it's about the longest flight in the world. Yeah, pretty much. So yeah. I'm not saying I don't want to go, but don't tell me it's not far. It's far. Right. Well, right, and it, get... it probably will be winter, too. Yeah, Assuming they I, hold I it over our so, summer. Yeah. So. Right. Um, all right, let's get to the game. We'll skip the kneeling stuff for the second segment so we can uh, wrap up what happened in both games into that conversation. So let's just talk about the game itself right now. I thought it was kind of typical courage. You know, they started off strong but missed some chances, and then they 
let Portland hang around, and then they threw the dagger at them in stoppage time, and they basically played about as poorly as you can expect, but three points. Well, I think that's the thing about the courage is that they can miss a lot of chances and still beat you just because they generate so many chances. And, you know, um, we talk a lot about Lynn Williams in this, and, and that was true today. She had the deflected shot that almost went in in the fourth minute, and Bixby uh, made a really great reaction save to keep that one out. And then we saw Williams beat uh, Becky Sauerbrunn 1v1 and get in, and then she beat Mengus. Uh, before firing over, and that happened midway through the first half. And then right before the break, we saw another chance where she beat um, uh, the name is Ubley uh, on, the, on the right flank there and, and got another shot on goal. And then, of course, all the way in the 94th minute, she finally gets on the scoreboard, but it's the game-winning goal, and it's a very nice header to put the game away. I don't know if you heard her on the CBS broadcast. She said, yeah, it wasn't perfect. I have to work on my finishing. It's like, well, as we say that every week. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and, you know, I thought Hubley did a really nice job mm-hmm. on Williams, considering that that's not her regular position. That you know, I don't remember spending too much time out there. And Williams is good. Yeah. I thought Hubley did a really solid job. I mean, in fact, I thought the defense was noticeably weaker when Hubley came out. Yeah, I thought uh, I was kind of worried about her, about – I don't know, maybe 30, 40 minutes in, because you could see how much effort she was having to put forward, just going one-on-one on that left flank over and over and over again against Williams. And, and Williams had gotten the better of her a number of times. So you did kind of wonder um, how how deep into the game she was going to make it. And if they had kept her on, you wonder if they would have found a breakthrough anyway. Also notable, Sam Mewis, I thought, played about as poor as she can possibly play. But... When the game was on the line, she granted she had all the space in the world, but she sent in about as good a cross as you can send in to Williams there in the, what the 94th minute to win it. But I, you know, we talked to I don't know if you were on the call yesterday with Paul Riley. Someone asked if Sam Mewis might be a player that can really take the next step now. You know, being a World Cup champion and with some players in and out of lineups and stuff. And he said, you know, of course he said absolutely. But I was disappointed. I thought. I did not notice Mew as much in either half until that last sequence. You know, it's funny you mentioned that Paul Riley quote because he actually, in that quote, mentioned Lindsey Horan and Rose Lavelle as well. And I thought Horan had a pretty good game. She had Me that too. opportunity early, which I know was was um, deemed offsides. And then we saw in the 74th minute she she went off the post on a header, and then um, and then again in the 80th minute. She had that header off the post, which Charlie cleaned up uh, to create the tying goal. Yeah, and I thought she also did a couple of good things in the defensive box. And that, I mean, it wasn't like 2018 Haran necessarily, but it was more of what we saw from her in 2018 than what we saw from her in 2019. Now yeah. she did not leave the game, but came off briefly after maybe hitting her head. So let's we'll keep an eye on that. A lot of people were not pleased that she went back in the game. I think you can make a case. Maybe she shouldn't have. But, you know, if this, you know, again, if this is a 24 game season, you're looking at it entirely differently. If 24, I think for the Thorns, if this is a 24 game season, I think you're saying, all right, Bixby played about as well as you can play for a rookie in goal. Not only is she a rookie, but she didn't, you know, her college was, what, two and a half years ago. So she's been backing people up for an awful long time without playing. I thought Sauerbrunn was okay. I thought Hubley was okay. 
you know, Angela Salem got out there. I thought Sinclair played okay, and I thought Horan looked like she had something to build on. Now, is that enough to get through this tournament? I don't know. But I thought, you know, if this was a 24-game season, I think it would have been okay, an okay start for the Thorns. In a tight tournament, I think I saw maybe a few too many holes. Well, I, I got to tell you, I was honestly surprised that it was a 2-1 game and that it was this close because I really expected North Carolina to kind of drop the hammer. When I saw the, the Thorns lineup come out, I thought, oh, my God, you know, it really kind of hit home how many changes that they've had uh, since last season. Because you looked at that lineup and you said, there's a lot of players here who have not had a lot of big game experience. And they held in there very well and even had a chance, you know, to, to come away with a draw. And I think they never have gotten enough credit since Parsons has been there for player development. And you look at Bixby, who's been there for a little bit. In the pipeline, you know, Hubley has played in a lot of games, but, you know, has gotten better. Elizabeth Ball, who they traded in the Sauerbrunn trade, you know, got better in the pipeline. Simone Charlie was there, I think, in 2018, right? And then, you know, was fantastic during the World Cup last season. So I don't think they get enough credit for that. And, you know, even Menges, who was, I think, I think that was a Riley draft pick, but, you know, Menges didn't exactly come into the league as a touted center back, and now she's among the best there is. Yeah, and we'll see, you know, if he can do that with Weaver and Smith, too. That would be a huge, huge move for them. You know, and I didn't realize that the Smith injury is actually from when she was at the U-20s and they were holding her back. I can't imagine that she would not be okay to play today, but that they're going to risk her, like, in a week or two. That just sounds, like, not good to me, doesn't it? There's a fair number of players coming into this tournament with injuries, some of which are six months old or longer. It's been uh, pretty surprising, some of the stuff that I think both of us have have kind of heard through the grapevine. And speaking of that, Allie Watt went down non-contact injury. Um, As of now, I haven't heard any updates on her status, but, you know, it didn't – it looks like an injury that's going to keep her out for a while. The non-contact injuries – are never good. She never got up. They stretched her off, which is not always a sign of anything, but it was clear she was not getting up. So unfortunate yeah. for the sixth overall pick. Um, just, uh, you know, any other thoughts come to mind game-wise? I mean, I, I, I mean, come yeah, I think uh, we should mention Addison Merrick's play. Um, I thought she did a pretty, pretty nice job. You have a, a rookie coming into that position playing against uh, a lot of times 1v1 out on the flank versus very talented players. Of course, the one that comes to mind immediately is the slide tackle on Haran. Um, midway through the, the first half, she, she, I mean, that slide tackle was after Haran had beat her, and it was in the box. So if she misses the ball, that's a penalty. And she had another one of those on Morgan Weaver right before she came out of the game in the second yeah. half. And Merrick also had a really nice ball in uh, mid-first half that Hamilton headed over the bar. Yes, I had forgotten about that. And when you think about how good Jaylene Daniels is at crossing the ball in, that's Jaylene Hinkle, now Daniels, if they can get anything similar to that on the opposite side, that's an incredible combination of players crossing the ball. Because I thought Daniels got off a couple of really nice crosses with Hubley playing her pretty tight. Yeah. <clears throat> Definitely. And uh, don't forget Mace, too, had the uh, the assist on the first goal. That's right. So Nobody an- even another... – yeah, no one knew she was even in the game. Yeah, yeah. 
So, yeah, Riley said, you know, she's probably an attacking player, and boom, comes in. And that's another thing on the Thorns, though. I didn't go back and dissect those two goals, but both of the courage goals, you know, Mace on the first one and Mewis on the second one. Where was the closest defender? They had all the time in the world, way, way too deep in the in the Thorns' end. Well, on the Mace one, it looked like it was just a clearance that just kind of hooked in an, in an awkward direction. If you go back yep. and, and watch that one, it was just a long clearance that just kind of happened to fall into a bit of space, and Mace uh, chased it down. The other one, I'd give a little bit of credit to Sam Mewis on the second one because I thought she had a really nice turn to kind of shake her defender and create that space uh, on the outside, which helped set up that second one. Um, yeah, so that was Mace who came over in the trade for Zerboni. She was the sky blue draft pick. What was she, second or third overall in 2019? Right. And decided she didn't want to go. So, you know, we'll see. Hopefully sky blue has a good showing at this tournament, but it seems everywhere they turn, you know, Casey Murphy comes out, starts playing well. Haley Mace comes in. Nobody even knows she's playing, and she already has an assist. I didn't like the five subs. I thought it felt too much like a friendly and like the game was too yeah. weird in the second half. Well, I think anybody who's used to watching international friendlies knows that you there's just a, a complete disruption to the flow of the game once you start getting past maybe the second sub. And so I thought the game uh, aesthetically was uh, great for the first 55, 60 minutes, and then, of course, it kind of became disjointed as all those subs came in. But the one thing I'll say in defense of that, I think considering the compressed schedule, the number of games, that this ideally is set up to help prevent injury. Yeah, I understand it. Uh, you know, sometimes when you get these things, they start for the right reasons and then they continue for the wrong reasons. So I'm just really hopeful they do it for this summer. I know it's not necessarily even a league call. You know, there's other powers that be making some of these rules, but I hope it is just for this season, just for this year, while things are a little bit awkward, and I hope it goes back to the three subs. Now, I believe you can only stop the game three times, right? You can't have, like, five separate substitutions necessarily, but it's still, there's a lot. You know, it's hard to follow who's playing where and, and who's doing what. And I actually thought the Thorns were bringing in the better subs other than Mace, but it didn't really turn out that way because the Courage were taking advantage. One more thing on Addison Merrick. Isn't that typical, Paul Riley? Because we probably named like every person we could think of on their roster as a possible right back. And then yeah. he comes out and starts an undrafted <laughs> rookie and she does yeah. okay. Yeah, well, I think most of us thought it was going to be Mace. I think maybe he thought it was going to be Mace. Uh, if I remember correctly at the draft, he either said outright or intimated that Mace was going to be a defender. And it even seemed like there was some sort of pressure, whether that was um, from the national team or whether that was from Mace herself, which is kind of what it seemed like they were saying on the broadcast, that she thought her best shot to get in with the national team was at, was at defense. Um, so to see her playing at forward and somebody that most of us hadn't heard of playing right back was, was definitely an interesting um, change of, of things since, since we thought the way they were going to be in January. Now, he said, Riley said on Friday that he thought, he told Mace that her best ticket to the national team was as an attacking player. Now, I don't know if that just means that he thinks she's that much better doing it than she is defending, but that seems a little wild to me because defense is clearly the, the, the thin spot on the national team, especially when you consider that Sauerbrunn is most likely playing the Olympics and that's it. 
I think that's fair, except for the only thing I'd say about that is that having watched Mace in college, and I can't say I watched her a lot, but in the times that I watched her, I thought she was much more impressive as a forward than she was as a defender. Um, I'll also just note that we've seen a lot of players get called into the national team uh, as defenders who normally play attacking spots, and that hasn't really seemed to work out too well for a lot of them, not only on the national team level, but it seems to throw their club form into a, a bit of chaos at times. And so I would think that you play your best position, and if you get called in, you get called in. All right, so Courage win 2-1 to one over the Thorns. I think if this was the nine-team tournament, that three points would already be enough to get them through. But it's eight, so everybody is through. So we're playing for seeding. Lynn Williams scored the stoppage time winner. We'll come back on the other side. We'll talk Red Star spirit. We'll talk about the kneeling and any other protests or things of that nature that might go on during the second game. Tie that into what happened in the first game with John Halloran. I'm Dan Loletta. You're listening to the Equalizer podcast. Hey, everybody. Jeff Kasouf here, founder of The Equalizer. Thank you for listening to The Equalizer podcast. Wanted to let you know that we also have another podcast that I host called Kicking Back. Kicking Back is a one-on-one style interview type podcast where we talk to players and coaches from the women's game and get to know them a little bit better and talk about some of the moments that define their careers. So after you're done listening to this podcast, which please finish this one first, Head over, check out Kicking Back. Make sure you don't miss it. We've got interviews with some of the top personalities in the game right now and many names that you know from previous years in women's soccer and many more interviews to come. So check us out on any platform. The one you're listening to right now also has Kicking Back. And we'll get you back to the Equalizer podcast now. Back on the Equalizer podcast with a reminder to please check us out on the web at EqualizerSoccer.com or for premium content, try EqualizerSoccer.com slash subscribe. And with the Challenge Cup now underway, lots of great content coming your way in terms of what's going on with all eight teams that are in Utah. As we mentioned in segment number one, Orlando had to withdraw from the Challenge Cup after a series of positive COVID-19 tests. So we wish everybody the best of health and hopefully they're able to get through this tournament okay without actually being able to participate. Probably not an easy scenario for anybody over there. So it's EqualizerSoccer.com and EqualizerSoccer.com slash subscribe. And also please remember to rate and review the podcast today. Uh, John, second game was 2-1 to one in favor of the Spirit over the Chicago Red Stars. We'll get to that in a moment. But there's been a lot of anticipation about what the players might do in a form of a protest. And, you know, it's been almost four years now since we first heard of athletes kneeling during the National Anthem. That was Colin Kaepernick. Megan Rapino took it up a little bit later that year while playing for the Rain National team stepped in. We know all about that history, but the discourse and the discussion have been a lot different now since the George Floyd death in May. And I think everyone was expecting a lot, if not all players, to take knees during the national anthem. Wasn't quite everybody, though. And then in the second game, a moving moment caught on camera between Casey Short and Julie Ertz. So just wondering your thoughts on that and, you know, the. Kneeling, because there was also a moment of silence after the kneeling, which was more 
specific to the Black Lives Matter movement and not necessarily in protest as, you know, taking a knee for the anthem is is described as. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it was a hard moment to watch. I think it, it you know, and again, we haven't uh, we haven't heard from the, the post game press conferences. So, you know, she may she may have gone into this by the time this podcast is out. But to me, it looked like someone who ha- was letting go of a lot of pain. Um, and, uh, and then you saw, you know, her friend and teammate there trying to kind of help her uh, as best she could keep it together. So I think it was a very powerful moment. I know you're, you're kind of the, the sports encyclopedia. I, I was racking my brain trying to think of a moment in sports that, um, that I had this kind of emotional reaction watching and I, I really couldn't think of one. Yeah, there really are not. And certainly, you know, Anything that would compare is probably emotion based on the sport itself, whereas right. this was completely removed from the sport itself. You know, I'm, I'd be curious to know whether that moment took Casey short by surprise or whether she was kind of figuring that that might happen. Well, we did see them holding hands before the anthem started, so I think that it did seem like maybe she knew that that she was going to have a hard time getting getting through the anthem. Any thoughts on the fact that not everyone was on the knee? I think it's tough. I mean, I think, you know, and we saw in the first game at least all the starters um had knelt. I think I think people are in in a I think people are struggling. Look, I mean, this is this is something that a lot of people and we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we uh, talked about this initially. But this is something that a lot of people's views have changed on quite dramatically in the past few years. And I think in the past few weeks alone that people have had to take a, a really hard look in the mirror um, and think about a lot of things that are very uncomfortable a lot of things politically, a lot of things historically. And, you know, listen, we've talked about this before, but this sport, particularly uh, on the women's side, is a an upper class or upper middle class sport. It is uh, a largely white sport. And so I think it's fair to assume that a lot of these players come from very conservative backgrounds. And I think that that there's there's a contrast between where some of the players are and where the fan base is and i think some of these players are struggling now certainly if you look at how this has evolved over over 4 years where you had one player kneeling in solidarity versus 22 starters in the first game this morning and i think 18 starters in the second game this evening this has obviously made a quantum leap forward in just a couple of years, but I do think it's, you know, there are still going to be players who are struggling because they've been brought up a certain way and they've looked at America a certain way and the anthem a certain way, the, you know, the country a certain way. And I think some of them are probably struggling with how do they <clears throat> recognize you know, the protests um, and, and, and how do they rectify that with what they've always believed their entire life? I found it interesting and I apologize to whoever wrote the piece because I forget where it was. Maybe you've seen it, but where Megan Rapino and Crystal Dunn, or I think Crystal Dunn was talking about when Rapino first 
knelt for the national anthem in 2016 right. and that she went up to Crystal Dunn and said, I'm thinking about kneeling. And that was, I guess, right after Dunn had made the Olympic team, but she was still fairly young on the team. And she actually said, you know, she really appreciated what Megan Rapinoe was doing, but she was afraid to do it for herself. Right. And, you know, we have now absolutely come to a point where that is probably overcoming. I don't think anybody is not kneeling because they think there's going to be repercussions from the establishment. Um, you know, I would just encourage everyone to not pass judgment on those who didn't take a knee, especially without finding out their reasons behind it, because everyone has different reasons for doing what they do. And, you know, like you said, people are struggling and people are trying to figure out how to navigate this. And, you know, if you've spent 25, 30 years of your life with the national anthem, meaning one thing, it's not that easy to just decide that it means something different or that you're going to treat it differently. You know, and I, I think honestly, your actions between national anthems are more important than what you do while the national anthem is playing. That's my opinion. Yeah. The only other thing I would add is that, um, you know, we're, we're talking about players in the league. Um, but we, we also know that uh, Kaya McCullough, who plays for the Spirit, had uh, initiated this protest in college, too. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I'd, I'd forgotten about that, but I did I did realize that, you know, read about that, forgot about that ahead of tonight's game. All right. Um, can we get to the game? Yeah, let's do it. Really interesting game, in a sense, I thought. Two to one spirit because Rose Lavelle was pretty darn good in the first half. And that goal that she scored where she basically makes a defensive takeaway, cuts up the Red Stars midfield, finds Ashley Hatch, and then runs on to get the rebound after <laughs> yeah. Bledsoe saves the ball from Hatch. I mean, you can't do much more than that on a goal. Maybe should have had a second goal, but I thought this game slowed down a lot in the second half. And maybe that Nayer blunder where Hatch took the ball off her in the first minute of the second half, maybe that blunder kind of killed the game because the Red Stars were better in the second half. But it's like, all right, we're one goal down. We're coming out going to be better. And then before we even really touch the ball in the offensive third, we're two goals down. Yeah, I mean, obviously that that was not a great moment, um, you know, and it was it was kind of a, a juxtaposition to what Nayer had done in the first half, where she had had three point blank saves, uh, even on that play you mentioned, which which Lavelle was terrific on. Nayer saved uh, a shot from Hatch from what six yards out. Uh, yeah, was, um, that's, that's a good save. So, and, and then she did it on Hatch and then Lavelle again later in the half. So Nayer was in the middle of an outstanding game. And then of course, uh, yeah, made that mistake. And at first I thought maybe short made a lazy back pass, but that is a hundred percent on Alyssa Nayer. Yeah, I agree. I think it was Gordon actually who was made the back pass. But you're right. I initially thought, oh wait, was that a soft back pass? And then I saw the replay, and I thought, nope. Um, she she did this weird thing where she like opened up her body to I don't know if she was trying to give herself more time or to open up the other side of the field, and and that just gave Hatch that extra you know quarter of a second to close her down. But didn't don't you didn't you watch the first half and think like if we could get this version of Rose Lavelle healthy for 24 games or whatever number of games the national team players are going to be there for in any given year that, I mean, she could really carry a team with the way she can play. And then she made one run 
in the second half and you forget how quick she is when she's in, yeah. you know, cause she's not in open space all that often. <laughs> well, the joke is, is that she runs faster with the ball than she does without <laughs> it, which does oddly enough seem to be true. Um, it was also interesting though, the other day, I think maybe it was in the press conference, uh, or maybe in, in something that the spirit released, but she actually said, it's kind of nice to only have to focus on one team. And that comment made me pause because it made me think how difficult it must be for these national team players who are constantly being pulled out of the club season to go play national team games, you know, throughout the spring, throughout the summer, throughout the fall, and switch that focus back and forth. And just the simple relief she seemed to be having to just focus on her club play for the next yeah, month. That's interesting. And, I, you know, we talk a lot about Crystal Dunn and how she plays an attacking role for the Courage and then outside back for the national team. That's got to be even harder for a player like her. And she does – she handles that with complete ease. And I remember talking to Kelly O'Hara about this back in the 2013-14 era when nobody really knew was she a forward, was she a defender. She's not quite as – uh, insightful in her answers as Crystal Dunn, but she would always say, no, nah, I don't care, whatever, I, you know, I don't care if I'm an outside back here and a midfielder with the national team or vice versa or whatever. You know, I also wonder, you know, even though we know that there are U.S. soccer people on site and they're kind of monitoring the contracted national team players, is it is there actually pressure off the coaches just in terms of where they use them? Because I don't think four to seven games in a slightly different role is going to make a big difference for whatever the national team gets back and playing again. Yeah. Well, we talked about that a little bit in the, in the first segment with the North Carolina discussion about Haley Mays, because it did seem uh, based on what we knew in January, that there was kind of a, a push perhaps from the national team to play Mays as a defender. And uh, that pressure, you're right, is gone because there may not be national team games until 2021. We just don't know. Well, that's gotta be, like the last thing to come back, right? International soccer. Are we talking about gathering players that, I mean, very few national teams around the world have all their players playing in their home country. And then you have to gather them and then travel to another country, sometimes yeah. very far away. I don't see that happening again. Well, and I gotta, I gotta say, there's probably not a lot of nations right now that would want to send their teams to the United States. Just Absolutely. looking at, looking at our numbers compared to the rest of the world. We have not done a very good job containing it, containing the virus. So I think that's something we're going to be struggling with well into the fall. And I don't know that they want us to come there either. Yeah, probably not. To be honest. And how about this? We're going to let's take a little sidetrack trip here. Do we think, let's assume 2021, everything goes back to normal. We think Vlatko arranges for the U.S. to go to Australia in 2022 for a little prep. Maybe. I mean, we saw, we saw obviously Jill Ellis do that with, uh, with traveling to France ahead of the yep. 2019 World Cup. Yep. As we talked about in the first segment, though, France is a nice little seven hour flight. Australia <laughs> it's a whole other ballgame, but they yes. do it to come over here. So, well, let's, you know, I wrote about this a little bit last year, but the one that amazed me last year was, was what Danny Colaprico did where she, she flew all the way to Australia to do her W League stint, and then she was on the ground for, I think, a day or less when she found out she was getting called into the national team camp, which was being held in Portugal. So then had to fly to Portugal, then had to fly back to Australia, 
then got called up uh, for the January team, uh, January camp, which was games in France and Spain. So I had to fly back to Europe, then back to Australia, then back to Chicago. And um, just something incredible. Like, I think she went around the earth two and a half times if you added up all the miles. So you're right. I mean, there's there's a significant travel consideration there. Yeah. And was it Sonnet that came over from Australia for friendlies, dressed for both games, but never played? Yeah. And then went back to Australia. All right. Anyway, um, I watched this game from the Red Stars perspective, and my two thoughts are, number one, I can never keep up with Rory Dames' thinking about what he's going to do with Julie Ertz. Yeah, I you was know, surprised she played at the six. That was just seemed like such an odd move today. Well, especially without Davidson in the right. back, too. Now, he talked about playing a lot of younger players and, you know, using these first four games really to get a good look at younger players. But every time I think, all right, this is what Earth is going to be for the Red Stars, he changes it up. And he obviously knows what he's doing. He's been in the playoffs five years in a row. But, yeah, I was I was surprised as well. Well, they solidified that playoff run last year by moving Earth into the back right, line. Exactly. And Davidson, they went right, <laughs> right. one goal in six games, right. I think, when right. they were back there. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe he just really wanted to get a look at, at Morse because the other thing is they have options to drop, you know, whether it's McCaskill or Nagasato into that number 10 role. So even, even with Colaprico being – banged up right now if they need a third midfielder they have some forwards who can play in that kind of hybrid role so they could have manipulated the lineup and still played Ertz in the back yeah absolutely now what did you think of St. is it St. George I thought she played pretty well I, I thought too. she she played physically um she obviously um hit hat or hit Sanchez uh pretty hard one time and then uh, did the same to McGrady. Um, and then there was, I don't know if anybody even noticed it, but on that play, maybe, I don't know, it was around the 75th minute when Sanchez was able to receive the ball um, and look like she was going to get an open chance. It was actually uh, St. George who closed her down on the second or third effort on that play. So there was, there was definitely a lot of hustle in her game tonight. And I thought, at least on the physical side, she really stepped up well into her, her professional debut. That was the one where he, Sanchez got in, and then she cut to get it on her right foot, but then she kept cutting? Yep. Yeah, okay. And I thought Sanchez was a couple of signs of life, maybe not all over the game, but as a forward, you don't always have to be all over the game. She had that, a great run early on, and yep. I think she – either shot it into traffic or high or something like that. And she was in position to get on the ball. So I think uh, there might be some promise there. And I'm a, you know, I'm a big Ashley Hatch fan. I thought Ashley Hatch was pretty good. I think she's better central than on the outside where she was in this game, but I'm a, I'm a very big Ashley Hatch fan. But uh, my other red stars thought was similar to the thorns. If this was the start of 24 games, I think they'd be fine because you'd be getting players healthy and you'd be figuring out how to get Watt on the score sheet, how to get Doniak in there. You know, Katie Johnson came in, didn't make a big impact. She's looking for a bounce-back season. You know, Vasconcelos is back. But I, I don't know. Can they score enough goals here? Well, that's the thing is they have seven forwards. If you if you go through all the options that they had plus the three that they brought in, they've now got seven players fighting for three spots. So, there's certainly competition there. Now, whether or not, you know, anybody is able to step up into that role and come out of this tournament with 
three goals, that's another question. But you're right. That's that is the question. And everybody knew it. This was not a secret. It wasn't the big mystery coming in. Everybody knew how are you going to replace Sam Kerr? Uh, and again, you're not going to replace her with one player, but how are you going to kind of cobble together or restructure your attack? Now, the one thing I did think was interesting with him playing Yuki Nagasato uh, in that number nine is that we know there was some speculation she would kind of drop in and maybe play like a false nine, but she played pretty high as the target. And she's the kind of player who can hold the ball up and allow more players to join in to the attack so they can create those combinations. Um, so that did happen at times tonight. And you mentioned Watt. I thought she was really active, but it looked like she was just a quarter step away from making the difference on a number of plays. She couldn't quite get the separation from her defender. There was the one play where uh, she did get enough space and serve the ball into Hill and the ball did end up in the back of the net. But of course, um, Watt was called off sides on that. So th- again, it was, it was close. You could see there was this glimpse that something might happen, but it didn't quite come off tonight. She sent one into Ertz too. And I thought Ertz didn't handle it well at first and didn't give her, I think she needed to take it down a little better to get herself the shot. And once she didn't, they closed her down. That was kind of toward the end of the night. Good yeah. saves, good saves from both keepers at the end of this game too, because uh, St. George could have tied it and yeah, the shot might have been right. going wide, but Bledsoe just kind of stuck her arm out and then Nayer made a fantastic save. I forget on who, but right toward the end of that match. I, the thing with the Red Stars is, you know, everyone says, well, Kerr's been there two years, but before that it was Kristen Press, who was a completely different player from Sam Kerr, but it was the same sort of thing. We've got this one player that scores all the goals. So they really have never been good without one dominant striker. So it, I do believe it. I think they have enough players, but I think it'll take time. I, you know, again, four games and you're in to play for your life in game five. So we'll see. Well, and sometimes having more than one scoring option can actually open things up because Absolutely. it doesn't allow anybody to focus on shutting down any one player. But again, those players then have to step up and whether those goals are coming from Watt or Nagasato or McCaskill or Hill or Katie Johnson. I mean, again, there's a ton of options there. And assuming that, you know, Vanessa DiBernardo and Morgan Bryan stay healthy, and especially if Danny Colaprico can work her way into the tournament, the midfield should be pretty solid. And they're not going to face many midfields better than what they faced in Washington. I think, right. I think we saw the three best midfields in the league today. Red Star, Spirit, and Courage. I don't know. Yep. That, I don't think anybody else even competes. Uh, a lot of talk. Spirit are the top challenger to the Courage. I'm not buying that yet. We'll see. You know, you mentioned Hatch and Sanchez earlier. I thought both of them played pretty well. Um, I'm a big fan of Andy Sullivan. I think she can put her foot on the ball and completely control the tempo of the game. And then Lavelle obviously can break things open when needed. So. Um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely big on, on the spirit and how they'll do. We'll, we'll see how it goes from here. Let's put it this way. Good start, and they're very good, and all your points were just accurate, but I think if they don't win the midfield, I don't think their back line holds up in a game that they don't win the midfield decisively. Yeah, we'll see. 
All right, so Spirit and Courage win both by scores of 2-1. to one. Spirit beat the Red Stars. Courage beat the Thorns. Players, as expected, participated in protest during the National Anthem. Not all players, but most of the players. So we'll see what happens as we head forward in this tournament. Back at you with more NWSL Challenge Cup action on Tuesday. And we'll, we'll be back with another podcast to recap that. So, John, thanks for hanging out late to record this one with me. For John Halloran, I'm Dan Lawletta. Thanks for listening to the Equalizer podcast.